Okay, uh, welcome to um, this third day of the International Marxist University. It has been a tremendous success so far. We're all very pleased with uh, the uh, attendees. Um, uh, for those of you who are new visitors to, to the uh, event, you will notice that we're waiting, we're pausing uh, every once in a while. Uh, and that is uh, to make space for translation. Uh, and for those of you who would like some translation, you'll find the links to the translations on the left-hand side uh, in the event page. Uh, also, the way to choose which session you're watching is to click the star on the left-hand side, uh, where you can see the schedule of all the different events. And you can also watch the events that took place yesterday and the day before from those links. And uh, today uh, we're going to discuss uh, spontaneity and anarchism. Uh, and John Peterson from the United States will be leading off for about uh, one and a half hours. And then we will have uh, some a break after that. Uh, and after that, we'll have uh, four or five comrades who will come in to speak. And then uh, John will be summing up the discussion. Uh, and then we will uh, end the session there. Uh, so. Uh, Without uh, further ado, I'm going to hand it over to John. Okay, well, thank you, Comrade Chair, and thank you, Comrades. As we saw in the discussion on world perspectives, these are truly unprecedented times. And nowhere is this more evident than in the United States itself. Now, for weeks after the murder of George Floyd, mass protests raged and the state was thrown off balance. A police precinct in Minneapolis was burnt down. The world's most powerful man was forced to hide in a bunker. <clears throat> Armed self-defense patrols emerge in working-class neighborhoods. The entire west coast of the United States and of Canada was shut down by the longshore workers, by the dock workers. <clears throat> and a few blocks of the city of Seattle were declared an autonomous police-free zone. And so it seemed as though the George Floyd movement had endless reserves. As though the raging river would never recede back into its banks. The depth and the breadth of the movement was, was really exhilarating. But we understood that if it was not given a revolutionary expression, it could not continue at that scale indefinitely. And that's the number one lesson of dialectics, that nothing lasts forever. And so the mass movement inevitably ebbed in most areas. El movimiento de masas decayó inevitablemente en muchas áreas. Although it has flared up again over the weekend in a few cities. Aunque ha resurgido de nuevo en algunas ciudades durante. But we've seen that the movement's uncontrolled spontaneity was one of its greatest strengths. Vimos que la espontaneidad del movimiento descontrolado fue una de sus grandes fortalezas. But it was also a fatal flaw. Pero también fue una falla fatal. But who can deny the incredible potential that has been revealed? 
Pero ¿quién puede negar el glorioso potencial que esto reveló? And, 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 you know, who can't imagine what would have been possible if there had been a real and serious leadership in place? Now, with images of smashed windows and violent clashes between protesters and the police covering the televisions, our dear leader, Donald Trump, declared the following. He said, quote, We are now in the process of defeating the radical left, <clears throat> the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who in many instances have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Now, since Donald Trump is an ignoramus, who in many instances has absolutely no clue what he is doing, he lumped the Marxists in with the anarchists. But anyone with any familiarity with the matter knows that nothing could be further from the truth. Now, on the surface, there are what appear to be many points of agreement. <clears throat> Both Marxists and anarchists envision a world without states, without religion, without money. But as we'll see, Marxism and anarchism are fundamentally and irreconcilably opposed in both outlook and practice. <clears throat> Now, this is a vast topic and our time is very limited. So I'd like to focus on a few key which we can then develop further in the discussion and the summing up. First off, we'll look at the philosophical differences between these two trends, and we'll compare the ideas of Marxism with those of people like Stirner, Proudhon, Bakunin. And we'll take up the question of the state. What is it? What isn't it? Whose interests does it represent? And how can we replace the capitalist state with something fundamentally different? We'll also look at the question of organization. <clears throat> How can the workers best organize to prepare to confront the centralized power of the bourgeois state? Is the spontaneous energy of the masses enough? <clears throat> And finally, we'll take a look at the closely related question of political struggle. Is the way forward mass action, including political action, or individualism and abstention from politics altogether? Is political power something to fight for, or is it something we should abstain from out of principle? How should leaders be elected and, and held accountable? Or do we even need leaders at all? <clears throat> Now, to be sure, there's, there's many variants. There's schools, different organizations, and philosophies. <clears throat> there's virtually as many uh, of these as there are individual anarchists. So my intention is not to set up straw man arguments or to caricature our anarchism. But there are some generalizations that we can make. Now, the essence of modern anarchism is summed up clearly by the anarchists themselves in a widely available pamphlet called Anarchism, an Introduction. And they say, quote, anarchists believe that the point of society is to widen the choices of individuals. This is the axiom upon which the anarchist case is founded. The ideal of anarchism is a society in which all individuals can do whatever they choose except interfere with the ability of other individuals to do what they choose. This ideal is called anarchy, from the Greek anarchia, meaning absence of government. So there you have it. In the final analysis, it's all about individuals, their self-interest, and their choices. Now, as with so many of the other political trends we're analyzing over the course of the school, in essence, the difference between Marxism and anarchism boils down to materialism versus idealism, Uh, mass revolutionary working class politics versus petty bourgeois individualism, 
and the importance of having a strategy, program, tradition, and ideas that can actually change the world versus unfocused anger and impotence. Now, in the final analysis, all philosophies express the viewpoint and interests of one or another class or layer of a class. And as we still live in a society divided into classes, there really is nothing fundamentally new under the sun when it comes to ideology. What are presented as new or fresh ideas are really nothing but a rehash of pre-Marxist and anti-Marxist ideas. Now, as comrades know, Marxism is a materialist dialectical theory. It's distilled from the real motion of nature and society and is then reapplied to the living world and in particular to the movement of the working class in its life and death struggle against capital. It's the most advanced form of human thinking yet developed. It's an intellectual lightsaber that can show the way forward through the darkness and confusion and slice through all the ideological obstacles in its path. So Marxist theory is an indispensable weapon in the fight for world socialism. It embraces contradiction, change, and motion. Now, anarchist theory, on the other hand, is a form of subjective idealism, of utopian socialism, in which verbal radicalism is combined with paternalistic sectarianism. So anarchism is rooted in petty bourgeois and even lumpen proletarian individualism, and everything else flows from this. Now, as a class, the petty bourgeoisie is squeezed between the titanic pressure of the big bourgeoisie and the workers. As a result, their outlook and their ideas are unstable, inconsistent, confused, erratic, and very often outright hostile to the working class, and especially to the organized working class. And for all their apparent radicalism, anarchist ideas are really uh, just mired in insoluble contradictions. Marx called Proudhon's ideas absurd, and he was trying to be polite. Now, as, as Trotsky famously quipped, as Trotsky said, said, anarchist theory is like an umbrella full of holes, useless precisely when you need it. Uh, as a form of subjective idealism, anarchism conceives of the world in abstract categories, divorced from contradiction and the real world. So, for example, concepts like freedom and solidarity are seen as eternal and inherent attributes of humans, as something universal, permanent, and fixed, and not as something conditioned by time and place and on the overall social context we live in. And although uh, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon is often referred to as the father of anarchism, uh, its real philosophical foundations can be traced to the former young Hegelian Max Stirner. Now, for Stirner, religion, conscience, morality, law, the family, and the state, all these things, uh, they're merely despotic abstractions imposed on the individual which the I, the ego, must struggle against by any means necessary. So in short, it's, it's as though I recognize nothing above myself. I feel oppressed by every institution that imposes any duty on me. But he's concerned not only with the individual's ego, but with the individual ego and his property. And as everybody knows, the world is basically like Mad Max out there. And an egoist can only retain their property as long as other egoists don't take it away from them. So flowing from this, Stirner opposes the state because it deprives the individual of absolute freedom 
and untrammeled access to individual property. And of course, as a result, he's vehemently opposed to communism. As a rabid defender of individual property, <coughs> he rebels against any state that infringes on the rights of private uh, proper sh- uh, property. So what this really reflects is the utopia of the enraged petty bourgeoisie, which blashes out blindly at forces beyond their control or comprehension. Now, if Stirner sounds a lot like the ranting of today's radical right-wing libertarians, it's because these ideas have precisely the same class origin. This is essentially the same worldview as people like Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek. As the website of the Mises Institute declares, quote, if capitalism did not exist, it would be necessary to invent it. And its discovery would be rightly regarded as one of the great triumphs of the human mind. So this is subjective idealism, pure and simple. And it's the very opposite of scientific socialism. And it's not an accident that both the anarchists and the libertarian right use precisely the same playbook when it comes to attacking Marxism, equating Leninism with Stalinism, Bolshevism with tyranny, uh, socialism with fascism, and, and so on. Now, as for Proudhon, the other father of anarchism, he was also a utopian. And as philosophical idealists, the utopian socialists believe that ideas are primary. And so all that is needed to improve the world is for a man of genius to come along and discover a perfect social organization. Now, Proudhon believed that he was just such a man of genius. But it was Marx who revealed the great secret to understanding human history. And that's that the structure of society ultimately depends upon its class relations, the degree of development of its productive forces, And that in the final analysis, conditions determine consciousness, not the other way around. Real social change results from objective changes in our material conditions. Not through the mere subjective will of individuals. So, for example, uh, Proudhon believes that God does not exist. That he's a figment of our imagination and a product of ignorance. And that's fair enough as a starting point. But he then applies the same logic to the state, which he considers to be a, quote, a phantasmagoria of our brain, which it would be the first duty of free reason to relegate to the museums and libraries. However, the state, as we all know, is something very real. Anyone who's been at a protest in the last few weeks knows this firsthand. It's been developed and conditioned over hundreds and thousands of years to serve a very definite purpose, as we'll see. So to view the state as a mere fiction may sound super radical on the surface, but it's actually a totally impotent analysis. Because if we're unable to understand the real origins and evolution of the state, and above all, its class content and its role in society, we will be unable to successfully confront and overthrow it. In fact, Proudhon's worldview is completely devoid of class analysis. In his view, the people in the abstract should be reconciled and unite for the greater good under the influence of pure reason. And as a representative of the petty bourgeoisie, Proudhon constantly oscillated between radicalism and conservatism, 
but always within the limits of individual private ownership of the means of production. Now, his great contribution was the idea of mutualism. And this is the idea that every worker should receive back in exchange from the pool of social wealth exactly the amount of wealth he or she contributed to it. So in other words, it's a glorified barter system governed by the labor theory of value, the free market, and a system of mutual credits. And apparently society has no need for a social fund to pay for things like infrastructure, schools, healthcare, etc. And so Proudhon, he, he detests big capital in the state because they deprive individuals of their freedom to enjoy 100% of the fruits of their labor. But he also rails against the idea of the working class expropriating the exploiters and establishing a democratically planned economy. For Proudhon, communism is an unjust tyranny and just as bad as capitalism. So it's not about, it's not a question of ending the system of commodity production par excellence, capitalism, but of strengthening the hold that commodities have on society. And far from abolishing the state as an institution of class rule, seeks to devolve its functions to a lower level, to the municipalities, the departments, and so on. So in place of one great centralized capitalist state, he advocates a vast number of small statelets. But in a sea of small commodity producers, uh, in a sea of small commodity producers, the laws of commodity production will eventually lead to the larger producers gobbling up the smaller ones, concentrating ever greater economic power into fewer hands. And you'd see a similar process of concentration with all the the little, little statelets. So instead of moving society forward, by taking the existing means of production to the next level, by bringing them under democratic public control on a world scale, Proudhon wants to take society backwards to an idyllic pre-capitalist petty bourgeois fantasy land, which never actually existed in reality. As for Bakunin, who is seen by many as the the Attila the Hun of anarchism, uh, we'll see that it's really just a reiteration of the same ideas with this or that modification. For example, he called it collectivism instead of mutualism. And though he tried to to give anarchism a a sort of materialist basis, he did this very superficially, very badly. He never understood dialectics. And in practice, he remained an idealist uh, and a petty bourgeois individualist. As his model for the new society, he had in mind the backwards, small-scale artisans of rural Switzerland. For example, the watchmakers of the Jura region. Uh, as well as lumpens and peasants generally, all of whom were alleged to be more revolutionary than the working class, which had been corrupted by life in big factories and cities. He called for, quote, the economic and social equalization of classes. So not the end of classes, but their equalization. He put a lot of emphasis on the right Uh, the need to abolish the right of inheritance. He believed that the state was responsible for inventing this right and that this is what perpetuates inequality. But of course, the right to inheritance is not something randomly invented by the state. It's a function of a society in which there's private property of the means of production 
and huge concentrations of wealth that can be passed on from generation to generation. Now, Bakunin was an opportunist and an intriguer, and he had no, no problem working with nihilist, lumpen sociopaths like the infamous Sergei Nechayev, but he also had no problem working within bourgeois parties. In fact, it was only when he reached a dead end working in a bourgeois party that he turned his massive ego to the first international, where he made an unholy mess of things and helped bring about the destruction of the international after the Paris Commune. So there you have it, comrades. These are the founding fathers of anarchism. Now, one of the key lessons of the George Floyd movement is that you can't meaningfully fight against the state without also fighting against capitalism. <clears throat> because the state that oppresses us isn't an abstract state, it's a capitalist state. As we've seen, the anarchists believe that the state is just simply bad. It's an authoritarian infringement on their right to absolute personal liberty. But as the great Marxists explained, uh, the state is a very real power, and it reflects, it reflects very real economic and class interests. The state is a power rising from society, but placing itself above it and alienating itself more and more from it. It consists of special bodies of armed men and women enjoying a monopoly of organized violence with the support of prisons, courts, and institutions of coercion of all kinds. Now, it appears on the stage of history along with the rise of classes, but far from reconciling divergent class interests, it's a product and a manifestation of the irreconcilable nature of, of class antagonisms. And it serves to defend the interests of one class in particular, the ruling class, over the rest of society. So our starting point has to be, what class interests does this or that state represent? Now, Bakunin, for example, he also thought that the state was responsible for creating classes. And because of his ahistorical and idealist understanding of the state, he believed, that even a, he believed that even a worker state would lead inevitably to the rise of a new minority that would oppress the majority. Now, Marxists, on the other hand, understand the need for a worker state as a transitional form. It would represent and defend the rule of the majority over the minority of former exploiters, and it would serve it would serve to coordinate it would serve to coordinate the transition to a nationalized, democratically planned economy. Now, unlike the Russians a century ago, who inherited terrible backwardness and barbarism from czarism. A modern socialist state would inherit an economy with a comparatively high level of development of the productive forces. It would mobilize the masses to defend the revolution. And on the basis of a rationally planned economy, society would have the capacity to provide more than enough for everybody in a very short space of time. And so the coercive role of a state, like a capitalist state, which represents the, the minority over the majority, would very rapidly diminish. <clears throat> And so over time, on the basis of equality of life for all, class distinctions themselves would begin to fade away. And I think this uh, would happen quite quickly, in my opinion, given the belated nature of the socialist revolution and the degree to which the productive forces have developed within capitalism, even if it's happened in a very distorted way. 
So once there's no longer an opposing class to coerce, the state as an instrument of class rule will wither away and it will be replaced by the non-coercive administration of things. So to get rid of the state, we have to get rid of classes. And you can't just wish these things away. The, the ruling class will never give up its power without a fight. And furthermore, the capitalist state apparatus cannot be simply taken over by the workers to serve our interests. A very different kind of state is needed. Instead of a, a power standing above society, a worker state would be the organic expression of the majority. It would be comprised of democratically elected neighborhood and workplace committees, these would be linked up locally, regionally, nationally. In the Russian Revolution, these were known as Soviets. And uh, the four basic conditions for beginning the work of coordinating a worker state uh, are, are as follows. That's the election and recall of all public officials at all levels. No official to receive more pay than a skilled worker. All these positions should be rotated regularly. As Lenin put it, every cook should be able to be prime minister. And these measures alone would go a long way towards fighting uh, careerism and bureaucracy. But the fourth condition is that instead of a minority of specialized oppressors, as we have today, you would have the armed masses themselves elected and accountable in defense of the revolution. And these kinds of organs uh, rise in every revolutionary situation and situations of, of dual power. And this is a qualitatively different kind of state. Given its vastly different class composition, it would in reality be a semi-state, as, as Engels put it. And so we as Marxists, we're absolutely in favor of this kind of state. In fact, one of the most exciting things about the recent protests was the organic emergence of neighborhood defense committees. And this represented the embryo of the embryo of dual power, of workers' power. And its emergence in the U.S. is really pregnant with revolutionary implications for the future. But it's not only a question of what the workers should do during the revolution or once they've won political power. It's a question of preparing to win power in the first place. And like everything else we do, our strategy, tactics, and organizational methods flow from our class perspective. The working class is a collective class. <laughs> And we base ourselves on the need for mass, collective, class-independent action. Anarchism, on the other hand, bases itself on the individual, as we've seen. It rejects the idea that we need leaders, that we need a disciplined organization, that we need to study theory and prepare for revolution. Instead, they rely almost entirely on spontaneity. But this has severe limits, as we've seen. So instead of a party prepared in advance with a clear program and transparent membership and leadership structures, Bakunin's vision was of a conspiracy of an unelected, quote, secret universal association of international brothers. And he, he believed that two or three hundred revolutionaries are enough for the largest country's organization. And so if that's all that was needed, many sections of the IMT would already be on the eve of power. So Bakunin accused Marx of, quote, ruining the workers by making theorists out of them. <clears throat> because apparently all you need is instincts, not theory, in order for the revolution to be victorious. And of course, this is the very opposite of Bolshevism. 
Yes, the energy of the masses is the motor force of revolution. A small group cannot force the working class to move into action before it's ready. But the key point is this. In the heat of a revolution, there's no time to experiment or to learn by trial and error. Now, revolutions are not as rare as the bourgeois would have us believe, but they don't come too often in any single country in any single lifetime. We can't waste these opportunities because failure and defeat can have disastrous and even deadly consequences. We understand revolutionary processes dialectically and understand that the spontaneous energy of the masses needs to be channeled via an organization with a program perspectives, strategy, tactics worked out in advance, which is rooted in the class. And and that's a revolutionary party made up of experienced Marxist caters. Now, a cater organization is like the muscle memory of the working class. Cater is a a military term, and the caters are the commissioned and non-commissioned officers, specialists in military history, strategy, and tactics. And they're the ones that drill up and train the millions of raw recruits when there's a general mobilization for war. And it's similar with the class struggle. (laughs) After a long period of hibernation, a prolonged ebb in the open class struggle. When the workers first begin to flex their muscles and to move into action, they'll inevitably be disoriented and hesitant. But trained Bolshevik caters can rapidly and efficiently transmit the collective lessons of our class. The past victories and defeats, the theory and the organizational forms, what works, what doesn't work and accelerate the process of training up the proletarian army for its confrontation with capital. Now, although anarchist organizations, or as they're often called, collectives, do exist, they typically operate on the basis of consensus, because, of course, nobody wants to impose their view on anybody else. (laughs) But, of course, this means that any individual has veto power over the majority, and this is the most undemocratic organizational form possible. This is the kind of impotent, demoralizing structure that was at the heart of the Occupy movement, as well as in the Chaz Chop occupation in Seattle. Now, of course, since anarchist organizations don't have clearly defined structures, usually, they don't have you know, elected leaders who are accountable and so on, they're often run very undemocratically, often as the personal tyranny of whoever has the strongest personality or, or through unelected cliques. And the reality is that in every human relationship, we must subordinate a part of our autonomy and freedom. But in exchange, we get a whole that is far greater and stronger than the sum of its parts. In a Bolshevik organization, we voluntarily agree to abide by the majority decision after having had a free and democratic opportunity to make the case for our ideas and positions. But our collective strength flows from that unity and action. And undermining that collective strength in the name of the rights of the individual is basically like strike-breaking and sabotage. Now, another conception of anarchism is that the organization should be a microcosm of a future society. Now, many anarchists seem to think that it's possible to live without classes or the state or money in a miniature bubble, starting with themselves, of course, liberating themselves within capitalism itself in a collective or a commune or through so-called guerrilla gardening. Uh, But Marxists view the revolutionary organization very differently. 
We understand that it is a specialized and essential tool that is needed by the working class to smash through the barriers of capitalism. So we can start building a new society, but it is not the new society itself. Now, most anarchists believe that workers should be in unions, though they often create their own unions, like the IWW. Uh, But they transform this basically correct idea into a magic key that can supposedly solve all questions. Because as important as unions are, they are not in and of, of themselves enough. As Marx explained, to fight as a class in the interest of all workers against the interests of all capitalists, we also need political struggle. This is why the demand of some anarchists, one big union, uh, can't in and of itself end capitalist exploitation and oppression. Workers' control over production on the shop floor is not enough, and worker-owned cooperatives are definitely not enough. You can't artificially separate economic and political struggle. Now, it's absolutely true that workers' organizations and parties can be bureaucratized. They can degenerate. Uh, Individual leaders can be bought off, they can wear out, and unfortunately, there's no 100% guarantee that this won't happen, just as there's no guarantee that your knife won't get dull if you don't take care of it and keep it sharp. But we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We fight reformism with revolution. We fight against corruption with accountability, against cliques and secrets with transparency and internal democracy. But the anarchists lump all parties uh, uh, yeah, uh, into the same category, whether they're liberal or conservative bourgeois parties, whether they're uh, reformist or bureaucratized workers' parties, or a revolutionary Bolshevik party, they condemn them all. And again, this is an ahistorical and very confused conception. So, of course, our aim is not to create a reformist parliamentary party that can negotiate the terms of our servitude with the capitalists. We aim to forge a political and organizational spear that can pierce the system's heart and kill it once and for all. Now, a healthy revolutionary party requires an active and engaged membership. But above all, it requires a truly revolutionary program that transcends capitalism and and has that historic strategic aim in mind. Now, Unless and until we are in a position to replace the farce of bourgeois democracy with mass revolutionary politics, we must, in many cases, participate in bourgeois elections, though we have no illusions that these elections can in and of themselves bring about fundamental change. We don't abandon the workers to the reformists. We place positive demands on the reformist leaders and expose them in practice, not by merely denouncing them. And we never give acritical support to the reformists, nor do we join bourgeois governments. We participate in the workers' struggles and we put forward clear transitional demands that can raise the political horizons of the workers in order to help them draw the conclusion that we need a socialist revolution. And it's through this process that the limited nature of reforms and of the reformists are exposed. But most anarchists would argue that the right, the right to vote shouldn't be exercised because it merely sows illusions in the system. Their approach is pretty straightforward. Basically, they say power is evil, so don't touch power or you will be tainted by evil. But of course, as Trotsky explained, to abstain from the fight for political power is to leave power in the hands of those who currently have it. 
This is a completely sterile and reactionary position and no one learns from this process. Now, a classic example of how mistakes in theory lead to disaster in practice was during the Spanish Revolution. Now, in the midst of the revolution, the old state power collapsed under the pressure of the masses, but the leaders of the anarchist CNT refused to take power out of principle. Now, later on, when the revolution was in a, in a much worse situation, they joined the bourgeois government. Ten minutes left now, John. Uh, and this gave the government left cover, and it sowed enormous confusion among the workers. And this deeply undermined the struggle against Franco. And most modern anarchists would accuse those CNT leaders of abandoning anarchist principles. But the real issue is that they didn't, that the CNT did not take power in the first place when it was there for the taking. And of course, a, a victorious socialist revolution in Spain in the 1930s would have changed the whole world. Now, when power is on the streets, you must be prepared to take it. You can't hesitate. You can't vacillate. You can't respectfully hand it back to the bourgeoisie. So to be prepared to act decisively at the decisive moment, your entire strategy and organizational psychology even must be aimed at the winning of power for the working class. And it's not a question of imposing our will on the masses, which isn't possible anyway. But insofar as our ideas correspond with the experience of the workers at a particular stage of the class struggle, uh, insofar as we're seen as hardworking, honest, and rooted in the class, after a series of successive approximations in which other parties and leaders are tested and found to be wanting, the masses will give our ideas a chance if we're big enough for them to find that find us at that moment. Now, the workers can see with their own eyes that the world is on fire. Billions of people are looking for a way out. All we're doing is offering a clear exit from the burning building. But knowing the way out of the burning building and having enough people in the right places to organize an orderly exit can't be improvised. So the task of revolutionary leadership prepared in advance is to accelerate that process. Or if you like to flatten the curve of the revolutionary crisis and to lead it to a victorious conclusion as quickly, efficiently and peacefully as possible. Now, I've only been able to touch the surface of this really vast topic. It, it has a lot of layers. Um, other comrades will come in and I can perhaps take up some other points in the summing up. But hopefully it sparked comrades' interest in learning more about Marxist theory generally, not just about Marxism versus anarchism, because it's all interconnected. Comrades, people who are alive today have little or no previous experience of living through a revolution or a general strike or an uprising. But over the last few years, millions of people around the world have had precisely that experience. And now millions of Americans have joined their class sisters and brothers around the world in those experiences. Now, the key lesson is this, the state and the police do not exist in a vacuum. Political power and the economic power behind it cannot be simply ignored or wished away. A new power, a new state on a new class basis is the only way to successfully fight and replace the status quo. Now, the anarchist movement has produced some heroic and inspiring class fighters and martyrs. Many of the rank-and-file members of the CNT or of the North American IWW, the Wobblies, contained within them the embryo of Bolshevism. But class instincts and the will to sacrifice aren't enough. 
And to be frank, the class composition of the anarchist movement today is overwhelmingly petty bourgeois, if not in class background, then in class outlook. And while many of them may invoke the name of the working class, they have no understanding of the contradictory way in which the working class actually moves. Now, we should be, we should be friendly to young people uh, who, who come to us and consider themselves anarchists. Given the legacy of Stalinism and the avalanche of lies about Marx and Lenin, it's understandable that, that some young people will look to anarchism first. But we have to be implacable when it comes to fighting against anarchist ideology. As we've seen, it's the ideology of an alien class. These ideas, they don't help the struggle of the working class, but actually damage it and hold it back, these methods. Now, Marxists are also against authoritarianism. We're also against blindly following the leadership. We're against having an unelected and unaccountable leadership. But we have no problem recognizing political authority, the political authority of a leadership that's proven the correctness of its ideas and its methods time and again uh, through its analysis of events, its participation, the struggles of the world working class. And, and this kind of authority has to be earned. It cannot be imposed from above. And we have no interest in imposing it from above. Now, the IMT is in the process of earning our political authority in the eyes of the masses of earning the right to lead the working class. And I think that our political authority has never been higher as exemplified by this extraordinary worldwide event. So we have to take the lessons from this discussion and, uh, uh, and the lessons from the school and redouble our efforts to overthrow this historic, uh, this horrific system in the next historical period. Comrades, long live the ideas of Marxism. Long live the fight for socialism in our lifetime. And long live the IMT and the world working class. Thank you, John. Um, yes, uh, we will take a break just in a minute. But before the break, I've got an announcement to make. So, um, on uh, July the 14th, uh, Comrade Amin from Karachi was, his, uh, was abducted from his home by the Rangers. And this is a paramilitary semi-state group in Pakistan. In many cases, the victims of the rangers have been tortured and many have lost their lives. And we appeal to all those watching to hold the protests against these crimes of the Pakistani state. And you can write letters uh, or emails to Pakistani embassies in different countries in a personal capacity or behalf of the organization. Uh, in part of your, as part of your organization, trade union branch or something like that. A video and an article has been published on our website, marxist.com. And this article can be posted on social media uh, with the following hashtags. Release Amin, Stop State Abductions in Pakistan and IMU 2020. So if uh, we're obviously demanding the release of the comrade and uh, that uh, he should be entitled to a fair trial if, uh, to face any charges. Uh, and I will post a link uh, to the article on the two chats. And you will get reminded us later on in the day, but we'll be very grateful for your help in this matter. So we'll take a 20-minute break, and we'll reconvene at 3 o'clock British time. And so I'll see you back then. Okay. Um, welcome back to... Uh, uh, we are now 
going to have four interventions. We're going to start with uh, Adrián Alvarado from Mexico, uh, who will be speaking in Spanish. So we, you will get the Spanish uh, on the stream itself, uh, as well as the uh, English translation. Okay. Uh, sorry. Bueno, eh, como ya se mencionó, yo soy parte de la sección mexicana de la corriente marxista internacional. Como dijo el, as, as, the, as the host said, uh, I'm a member of the Mexican section of the International Marxist Tendency. Agradecer a John por la excelente introducción acerca de las ideas del anarquismo. I'd like to uh, thank John for his excellent uh, lead-off on the, on the ideas of anarchism. Y creo que esta escuela ha sido muy motivante para todos los miembros de la corriente marxista internacional. I think uh, this Marxist university has been very stimulating for all the, the comrades in the tendency. El anarquismo ya no goza de la influencia de masas que tenía a principios del siglo pasado. Anarchism doesn't enjoy anymore the mass influence uh, it had back in the beginning of the 20th century. En países como España, Argentina, México u otros. In, in, in a series of countries such as uh, Spain, Mexico, or Argentina. Sin embargo, como lo hemos explicado, millones de jóvenes en el mundo están buscando alternativas revolucionarias. However, uh, as uh, we've explained in the past, uh, today there are millions uh, of uh, young people who are looking for revolutionary alternatives. Ante la crisis y el fracaso del sistema capitalista. As they are faced with the, with the crisis uh, and, the, and the failure of the capitalist system. En esta búsqueda pueden encontrar algunas ideas que en apariencia suenan radicales y revolucionarias. Uh, and as they search uh, for, for ideas, for revolutionary, for revolutionary doctrine, uh, they might come across uh, certain ideas that, uh, that uh, might sound uh, very revolutionary uh, on the surface. La reproducción de estas ideas puede representar de manera intuitiva una sana reacción ante la política de colaboración de clases. Uh, the, the appeal uh, of these uh, uh, anarchist ideas, to some extent, uh, reflects the bankruptcy of, uh, of class collaboration and it's a he healthy reaction uh, of uh, class collaboration. En las intenciones de gestionar el capitalismo It's also a, a rejection of, uh, of the reformist uh, attempts to uh, manage capitalism. Por parte de las burocracias de los partidos reformistas y los sindicatos. This is the policy of the, of, the, of the leaders of the reformist parties and of the trade union bureaucracies. Concepciones sobre la lucha política, el papel de una organización o dirección revolucionaria. Uh, the ideas about, uh, about uh, revolutionary leadership and the revolutionary party. Acerca del poder político, la autoridad, el Estado. About uh, political power, authority, the state. O sobre las tácticas de lucha, movimientos espontáneos, la acción directa o la acción de masa. Or ideas about, um, about uh, tactics, about spontaneity, about mass action. Los marxistas debemos superar el impresionismo y la percepción inmediata o aparente de la realidad. Uh, Marxists uh, should strive to overcome uh, impressionism and not to be led astray by, uh, by superficial impressions. Y debemos aspirar a analizar científicamente la sociedad para comprenderla y transformarla. And we have to, uh, to seek to understand uh, society uh, scientifically in order to transform it. Para ofrecer esa alternativa revolucionaria que los sectores de vanguardia de los 
jóvenes y los trabajadores están buscando. And, and put forward the, the genuine revolutionary alternative uh, that the vanguard of the youth and the working class uh, is looking for. El debate sobre el anarquismo es vigente, ya que algunas ideas pueden estar presentes en el ambiente y en algunos movimientos. Uh, the discussion about uh, anarchism is still uh, relevant because these, these ideas are still present in some uh, sectors of the, of the movement. La concepción sobre el Estado ha sido uno de los grandes debates entre anarquistas y marxistas. The, our our uh, analysis of the state has been one of the, the key bones of contention uh, between Marxists and anarchists. No es certero decir que los marxistas somos partidarios completamente del Estado y los anarquistas luchan por su supresión. Five minutes. It's, it's not entirely, uh, it's not entirely uh, correct to say that Marxists are in favor of the state and that uh, anarchists uh, uh, stand for its uh, complete Abolition. Ambos compartimos la idea de que el Estado debe desaparecer en algún momento en la historia. We both uh, share the, the, the idea that uh, the state must disappear at some point in history. Eh, no compartimos la idea de los liberales acerca del Estado es el representante de toda la sociedad. Uh, we reject the liberal idea that the state is the representative of society as a whole. O la idea de los reformistas eh, que piensan que el Estado es un instrumento de conciliación de clases y una herramienta de redistribución de la riqueza. And we also reject uh, the reformist uh, notion that the state can be used as an instrument uh, to transform society and to redistribute wealth. El Estado es producto de la sociedad dividida en clases sociales. The state uh, is, a, is a product of uh, class society. Es un órgano de dominación de clase y una un organismo de opresión de una clase sobre otra. It's an organ of class power. It's, a, it's an organ for the, the oppression of one class by another class. Es la creación del orden que legaliza y afianza esta opresión. It represents the, the order, the, the state of things that, that provides, and it provides a legal stamp to this oppression. Y este ha servido a la clase dominante en los diversos modos de producción que han sucedido a través de la historia. Uh, and this, uh, this uh, instrument, this, uh, this organism has served the interests of the, of the ruling class uh, throughout history. Y actualmente sirve a los intereses de los capitalistas. And nowadays the current state uh, serves the interests of the capitalists. Los marxistas concebimos que con la desaparición de las clases el Estado también desaparecerá. Uh, we Marxists say that, uh, that uh, when classes disappear, the state will also uh, wither away. Los anarquistas, en cambio, piden que al día siguiente de la revolución, el Estado se suprima. But the anarchists uh, demand that the state be abolished the day after the revolution. Proudhon concibe el Estado como un representante de la clase dominante, pero su concepción eh, parte de la visión de los artesanos arruinados por el naciente capitalismo. Uh, Proudhon does see the state uh, as an instrument of the ruling class, but uh, he, he appraises the state from the standpoint of the ruined uh, petty bourgeoisie, of the, of the impoverished uh, petty artisans. Al igual, que Cro que, al igual que Kropotkin, idealizan la comuna rural de la Edad Media. Uh, in the same way uh, that, that uh, he, both he and Kropotkin uh, idealize uh, the, the, the commune of the Middle Ages. Llegan a afirmar que incluso esta era 
una hermandad de ayuda mutua entre comerciantes y artesanos. They both uh, state that this epoch, the Middle Ages, uh, were, a, were a golden age of, uh, of uh, where the where small crafts, craftsmen uh, flourished. Y que dentro de la comuna se carecía de estado. And that within the medieval commune there was no state. Obviando la dominación y la opresión grotesca que los señores feudales ejercían en ese momento. And they, and they thus uh, disregard the, the oppression and the exploitation by the, by the feudal lords. Stirner eh, visualiza eh, la opresión del Estado, pero desde el punto de vista del individuo. Uh, Stirner also talks about uh, state oppression, but from the, the standpoint of the individual. Opone el yo o el individuo al Estado. He opposes uh, the, the I, the ego, uh, to the state. Es una concepción eh, que la pequeña burguesía ha retomado en la actualidad. This is a notion that the petty bourgeoisie is currently uh, re recovering, rediscovering. La concepción anarquista del Estado, como muchas de sus ideas. The anarchist uh, understanding of the state, uh, as is the case with many of their ideas. La podemos rastrear en los inicios del movimiento obrero. Can be traced back to the origins of the workers' movement. O incluso antes del nacimiento de la clase obrera. Uh, or even uh, we can trace it back before the, the working class uh, emerged as an organized uh, movement. Pueden representar las ideas de los artesanos en ruina, de los pequeños campesinos, de la pequeña burguesía. These are the ideas uh, of the ruined artisans, uh, of the impoverished uh, peasantry, of the petty bourgeoisie. Pero no de la clase obrera. But these are not the ideas of the working class. Aunque in, han ido adecuando sus ideas eh, a partir de la evolución del sistema capitalista. However, the anarchists have been, uh, have been uh, adapting uh, their ideas as the capitalist uh, system evolved. Por ejemplo, su idea de la no participación política la podemos rastrear en el momento en que no existían partidos proletarios independientes. For instance, uh, their, their opposition to political parties and political activity can be traced uh, back to the, to the, the epoch before uh, work, working class parties uh, took shape. Y la expresión política de la clase dominante se manifestaba entre eh, la corriente liberal y conservadora. Ten minutes, uh, five minutes and, the and the working class uh, uh, was, uh, was a plaything in the hands of the liberals and the conservatives. Um, la pregunta es cómo sustituimos el Estado burgués. The question is, uh, what, what do we, what do we, um, what, what is our alternative to the bourgeois state? Los anarquistas hablan de la supresión de la autoridad y el Estado. The anarchists uh, talk about the suppression of uh, classes and of the state. Pero no dicen cómo realizar esa supresión. But they don't explain uh, how, to, how to abolish uh, these evils. Se niegan a la lucha por el poder político hacia la clase trabajadora, para la clase trabajadora. Uh, they refuse uh, to, uh, to struggle for political power for the working class. Y que ésta cuente con una herramienta para poder realizar eh, el proceso revolucionario y eliminar cualquier intento de restauración por, las, por parte de las clases poseedoras. Uh, and they thus uh, lack uh, an, an instrument to defend the conquests of the revolution and to fight back uh, against the old uh, ruling classes when they, when this, when they stage uh, their counter-revolution. La burguesía no abandonará, no abandonará sus privilegios eh, con llamados morales a la lucha por una sociedad sin clases. 
the, the bourgeoisie will not give up uh, on its uh, privileges uh, simply with, uh, with, uh, with moralistic uh, calls for peace and, and, and uh, reconciliation. Por eso que la clase trabajadora necesita del Estado obrero, o mejor dicho, de ese semi-Estado que exponía Lenin en el, en el libro del Estado y la Revolución. Two minutes left. This is why the, the working class uh, needs uh, a workers' state, or rather a semi-state, as Lenin described it in the State and Revolution. La supresión del ejército permanente por el pueblo en arma. The standing army must be substituted by the, by the people in arms. La elección de representantes de la clase obrera y representantes populares elegidos universalmente y revocables en todo momento. Uh, state officials must be elected by the by the working class and they uh, and they uh, which must have the right to recall them at any moment. Y un salario de obrero de los obreros calificados hacia estos representantes, la reducción de los sueldos hacia los representantes de este estado obrero es fundamental. Uh, and uh, no official in a worker state uh, can earn more than a skilled worker. This is one of the basic tenets of the, of the worker state. Yo concluiría con una idea. And I'll sum up uh, with one idea. Eh, los anarquistas conciben el Estado desde el punto de vista idealista, metafísico, eh, y lo conciben como un, eh, como un órgano inmóvil y que no cambia a través de la sociedad. Uh, anarchists uh, see the state uh, in, a, in an idealistic and metaphysical way as something that is ahistorical and that does not change uh, with time. Los marxistas eh, lo estudiamos eh, en su proceso de desarrollo y lo concebimos desde el inicio de las clases sociales. Marxists instead uh, see the state as it uh, evolves uh, throughout uh, history in its different uh, stages and we uh, and we uh, identify its origins uh, in the with the emergence of uh, social classes la revolución socialista pondrá los primeros cimientos para el desarrollo de las fuerzas productivas y con ello eh, posteriormente para la desaparición de las clases sociales socialism will uh, lay the foundations for an unprecedented development of the of the means of production Uh, which in turn will uh, prepare the ground for the uh, withering away of uh, social classes. Con la desaparición de las clases, desaparecerá el Estado, se hará superfluo. And uh, as classes uh, wither away, so does uh, the state, which becomes uh, superfluous. Como Engels lo manifestó en un libro que todo mundo debemos de leer. As Engels said in, in a book that we should all read. El origen de la familia, la propiedad privada y el Estado. Uh, the, the origins uh, of, uh, of the family, uh, the state and private property. La sociedad reorganizada de un nuevo modo, re, la sociedad reorganizando de un nuevo modo la producción. A society uh, reorganizes uh, production along different uh, lines. Sobre la base de una asociación libre e igual de productores. On the basis uh, of a free and equal union of, uh, of producers, of, of workers. Enviará toda la maquinaria del Estado al lugar que le corresponde. It will uh, send the entire state machinery to the place where it belongs. Al Museo de Antigüedades junto a la rueca y el hacha de bronce. To the, to the museum along with the bronze axe. Por mi parte sería todo. Muchas gracias. That's all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adrián. Uh, the, next, the next speaker will be Antonio. If Antonio is ready. It looks, it looks like he's ready. Um, 
so I will unmute you. You should be ready to speak. All right, comrades. Um, I wanted to say a few words about revolutionary leadership in the, the context of 2020. Because in the last few months, the U.S. has come closer to uh, an outright revolutionary situation than in any other time in the memory of the living generation. In a country where the idea of revolution uh, was unthinkable, where, where people could not imagine an uprising of the masses in the U.S., it's estimated that 25 million people have come out into the streets in every city in the country. You know, last year we saw mass movements, civil unrest, revolutionary uprisings in a quarter of the countries on the Earth's surface. And given the number of countries represented on this uh, in this meeting, we, we have a lot of comrades participating that, that have lived through outright revolutionary situations. Up until a few months ago, this was not present in, in most people's minds in the U.S. But now it's no longer impossible for anyone to imagine a revolution in the U.S., what it would look like, because they've had a glimpse now. So this discussion uh, about anarchism, the question of the state, the role of leadership, it's no longer totally abstract for people in the U.S. or, or for this new generation of youth. You know, in the past, these debates were taking place among a small fringe, a minority of young people removed from the daily thoughts and concerns of the masses. As John explained, today, millions of people are discussing revolutionary ideas. Events like a global pandemic, a global crisis of the economy, a global wave of social unrest and discontent obviously starts getting people thinking of the global picture. People are thinking about where society is headed. Five minutes. And for every participant in this Marxist university, there are thousands of others in every country who are open to our ideas. Comrades have seen the polls in the U.S. showing growing support for socialism. Around 42% of the population supports some form of socialism. But even more interesting, as of last month, 20% of the population says they reject all forms of capitalism. That's somewhere around 50 million people. That's most of them the young generation who can't see any future for themselves under this system. And this discontent, this radicalization, it's being fueled by the impasse of the system. A revolutionary mood is taking hold of the masses. So what does this mean for us as, as revolutionaries? It means we have a responsibility to prepare for a historic windows opening up. In normal times, the idea of overthrowing capitalism, establishing workers' governments around the world, this would be pretty extreme for most people. But when, when circumstances push millions to question capitalism and open up to a revolutionary perspective, that's a rare, special occasion. And when we want to ask, what does it mean to be prepared for it? What does it mean to have, what, what does a revolutionary leadership look like? We turn to the party of Lenin and Trotsky, the legacy and the methods of Bolshevism. You know, at the beginning of 19th the membership of the Bolshevik party was around 8,000. That's not much more than what we have participating in this Marxist university online. And in eight months, from February to October 1917, they grew from 8,000 to a membership of 250,000. For every member of the Bolshevik party in February, 30 more members joined in the subsequent months. Five minutes left. Because they had correct methods, a relatively small group was able to win over the working class as a whole to a socialist program. We're talking about a Marxist organization that came together some 20 years before they were in power. This is, a, this is an achievement that all revolutionaries should study. Because those years before 1917 were years of preparation, meticulous political discussion, small circles studying theory, philosophy, lessons of past struggles. And the training they received is what allowed them to play that incredible role in 1917. 
not just the political education, which, which we are focusing on, but also political skills, agitation, propaganda. They sink roots in the working class. They became a point of reference, and that's what allowed them to put forward a socialist program at the, at the moment when the masses were ready for it. In the context of the 2020s, being ready means having branches of trained cadre in every major city in the U.S. and around the world. In a movement like the one that we're seeing in the U.S., we would be calling for the establishment of workers' defense committees, organizing a general strike across the country, but above all, linking all pressing demands to the need for a workers' government that can expropriate the major industries and plan the economy. A socialist program would offer jobs for all, higher wages, a shorter work week, health care, education, housing. When the U.S. working class is faced with this option, when they're given this program on a massive scale across the country, we can be sure that this generation of the working class, the millions who are coming to revolutionary ideas and the millions who are moving, who are going to be moving in this direction in the coming years. One minute left. They will embrace this program and carry out their historic destiny to transform society. Everything we do today is a preparation for that role, comrades. Thank you. Thank you, Antonio. Uh, so the next speaker uh, will be Francesco from the Italian section of the IMT. Uh, we'll be speaking for 15 minutes. Uh, he will be followed by uh, Daniel. So feel free, Francesco. Comrades, France is a key country to understand revolutionary syndicalism, an important tendency with semi-anarchist leanings. At the end of the 19th century, industrial growth in France was slower than in Britain or in Germany. The working class was too far less concentrated, and the political heritage of Proudhon and Bakunin was still strong. This, of course, led to all sorts of localism and petty bourgeois utopianism. So, in 1906, the foundation of a centralized trade union, the CGT, was a step forward. The revolutionary syndicalists won the control of the CGT. They declared themselves for class struggle and praised direct action. They also took a stand in favor of neutrality on the political field. The final task of the trade union was set to be the revolutionary general strike. This so-called political neutrality was intended to separate themselves from the opportunism of the Socialist Party leaders. However, in this political vacuum, ideological confusion grew up. Some leaders of the CGT went as far as to borrow ideas from George Sorel, the rationalist and anti-Marxist thinker. Moreover, the French syndicalists were convinced that trade unionism had to be the fact of just an active minority. That idea prevented the CGT to organize and get in touch with the broader layers of the working class. Anyway, with the outbreak of the First World War, all major political questions could not be escaped. Far from political neutrality, the top leaders of the CGT didn't resist the pressure of the bourgeoisie and joined the national unity. Five minutes. Only a tiny internationalist minority uh, led by Alfred uh, Rosmer and Pierre Monat was uh, uh, allied. During the war, they had a regular discussion with Russian socialists in exile, especially with Trotsky. Recalling the intervention made by Trotsky at that time, 
Rosmer wrote, quote, our horizons were broadening, but it was only the victory of the Russian revolution that sparked a general revision of the syndicalist eclecticism on the question of the party, on centralism, and on the need of proletarian dictatorship. For instance, the civil war in Russia convinced many of them about the need of the proletarian dictatorship. In France, many syndicalists joined the Communist Party and were instrumental in orienting it to the working class. Rosmer, for instance, played a great role in the early days of Communist International. Anyway, the ideological fusion with Bolshevism was not completed. The idea of trade unionism as a reflection of the spontaneous action of an active minority was still circulating, and Trotsky's reply was very sharp. He wrote that this line would create, quote, a substitute for the party and a substitute for the labor union. The trade unions would be too amorphous to play the role of a party and too little to play the role of a trade union. The rise of Stalin and the Bolshevization of the Comintern broke up all the discussion between communists and syndicalists. Ten minutes gone. Rosmer, Monat and others supported Trotsky and the battle of the left opposition in the, in the first instance. In November 1924, they were expelled from the French Communist Party as right-wingers. Now they were at a crossroad. In the years to come, reacting to Stalinism, the syndicalists went back to their own political origin, to a semi-anarchist position. They started a new paper, Proletarian Revolution, and refused to wage their struggle within the Communist International. So Trotsky warned them that this choice could, in the end, push them on the side of reaction. In fact, without a theory and a general strategy, they stood at the sidelines of all great events. During the 36 wave of factory occupation, they acted like left fellow travelers of the reformist government. During the Second World War, they almost disappeared. So in conclusion, the failure to grasp the meaning of Stalinism and the necessity of a general theory to understand the world doomed French syndicalism and explain quite well why this tendency completely collapsed. Workers' spontaneity, in fact, is not enough to win in our fight for international socialism. Thanks. Thank you, Francesco. Uh, the next speaker will be Daniel, and uh, he will be followed by Joel, who will be the last speaker before John sums up. Uh, so Daniel Morley from uh, Socialist Appeal in Britain will speak now. Okay, I too agree with Francesco that um, anarchism uh, lacks a coherent theory. Uh, in fact, it's not really a theoretical approach to political questions at all. They tend not to uh, discuss political questions from the point of view of what is necessary, but more from the point of view of what would be good, as if anything that you can think of can, is, is possible. One often, one often finds anarchist um, 
sort of exhortations to be free, you know, to live without masters, to make yourself ungovernable, which is a phrase you often see, um, is if it's enough to want to do those things for them to happen genuinely. And um, I think that the question of centralism is, is, is an example of this, which is a very important question. Most anarchists, if you ask them, they will admit that it's necessary to defend a successful revolution against a bourgeois counter-revolution, which is, of course, our justification for or reason for the need for a worker's state. The reason they say this is not to be a worker's state is that it is not to be centralised. It's rather to be a federal or, or an autonomous kind of structure. And so they pose it always as if it's a simple matter of preference. So the Marxists like centralism. They think it's good. Um, it's just a desirable thing. So they, they put it forward, whereas the anarchists are in favour of more personal freedom and autonomy. Whereas for us, it is not nothing to do with that. It's that it's absolutely necessary for the victory of a revolution. If you have a revolution, but there is a minority of the working class, for example, that is, or a particular conservative trade union that opposes the revolution, how do you deal with that? And this is um, not at all a sort of a hypothetical thing. It's a very real situation which arises in pretty much any revolution. Take the example of um, <clears throat> the Russian Revolution, which in which the Bolsheviks won democratically, won a majority in the Soviets. Nevertheless, you still had the Vichyl Union, which was the trade union of the train drivers. And because they opposed the Bolsheviks taking power, even though the majority of the workers were in favour, they basically threatened a strike in which they would not, you know, there would be no train services for the revolutionary government, it would effectively cripple the revolutionary governments. Now, if you practice a strict uh, federalism or or, or or a sort of principle of autonomy, it is impossible for the revolutionary workers' government to do anything about such a situation because you've got to allow for the autonomy of that section of the working class or that particular trade union. Five minutes gone. So, but the actions of such a, of a minority could potentially destroy the revolution. And if it did, then in reality, you wouldn't actually have autonomy for that group, what you would have is that minority would be imposing its authority onto the rest of the revolution or the working class. In, in And that reveals that in bourgeois society, in capitalist society, especially the capitalist society that has laid the basis for socialism, there is no possibility of autonomy for any major section of, of society. Because every section of the working class is interdependent because of the nature of the capitalist economy. <clears throat> But we also need centralism, I think, in in today's struggles and not just for a workers' government, but in the organisations of, of the working class um, as we fight against capitalism. <clears throat> and those that refuse to have any central leadership, ultimately, always any struggles based on that always peter out and in, in, into a kind of fruitlessness. In fact, when we have a very, very uh, recent example of this in the form of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, I'll just read out a quotation, which is, I apologise, is quite long, but it's from an anarchist participant in uh, this particular autonomous zone. And I think it's very telling. They say the following. <clears throat> 
the victory of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone soon came to be undone by the lack of political maturity of the movement to capitalise on victory. We lacked the ability to navigate political difference and move forward on shared interests for collective liberation. There was little ability to discuss the pressing strategic and logistical concerns in the space. Instead, people just started doing things, hundreds and thousands of people working on hundreds of individual and collective projects. This included a community garden for black and indigenous lives, nightly concerts and political rallies, documentary film screenings, a decolonial cafe and more. Ten minutes. The biggest problem was there was no collective, there was no space to have collective decision making to shape agreed upon priorities. A general assembly did emerge, but it was very difficult to get things done. It became more of a speak out with people voicing impassioned testimonials. And he sums up, the infighting we saw was rooted in a lack of decision making process that made even the most basic agreements impossible to gain collective consent. It's clear to me, that's the end of the quotation, but it's clear to me that the only way out of such a scenario in movements like that is to have a well-organised political tendency that can put forward clear political demands and proposals and attempt to win support for them democratically. But obviously that involves leadership. And finally, centralism is also vital for planning the economy, which is the only way to deliver socialism uh, and real human freedom. Because of their emphasis on autonomy, a lot of anarchists end up, effectively what they support is just uh, individual workers' cooperatives, which are run democratically, but there's, they're, not, um, they're not linked up in, an, in a necessary plan. But without such a plan, workers' cooperatives just become a kind of collective capitalist against their own will, because, of course, lacking any the security of a plan, they will have to compete in, in, in a market in, because they can't afford to go bust. You know, they need to pay their own wages. So they'll have to take decisions that are based on market forces, essentially. <clears throat> and if that situation were generalised across the economy, you would see repeated all of the features of a capitalist economy, including economic crises. And in such crises, workers would have to be laid off. And how would you decide who got laid off or not? <clears throat> The only way to overcome this is to have a centrally drawn up plan, which, you know, all of the main uh, industries um, factor into and are obliged to, you know, to, to, to produce for that plan. One minute left. It goes, goes without saying that plan must be um, drawn up by elected you know, people and must be subject to um, democratic criticism. <clears throat> And it must be left to the workers in their own workplaces to elect their own managers and to decide democratically how best to meet that plan. And if they disagree with aspects of that plan, they can raise that in the democratic organizing class and, and of the, you know, the workers, workers state. <clears throat> but if, if strict autonomy is adhered to, then, of course, if those workers decide that they don't fancy producing, actually they want to stop working or they want to work in a completely different way, there's nothing we can do to stop that and the plan can easily be sabotaged by any workers who uh, happen to disagree. It's time to sum up then. Ultimately, socialism means establishing a harmonious and coordinated society to do away with the contradictions and inequalities and the anarchy of capitalism. And without centralism, that is absolutely impossible. That's it. Thank you, Daniel.
if uh, Joel will be the last speaker before the um, uh, John comes back in. Are you ready, Joel? There's quite a lot of technical things to solve here as chair for once. Yes, I am good. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Uh, okay, uh, I would like to talk about how uh, many anarchists over the, or many youth over the past number of years um, have been interested in anarchism. Uh, this is at least the case in uh, North America, probably in Europe as well, uh, which is not difficult to understand why this is. Because look, look around you. Society stinks. It's horrible. Uh, the even even the movement, the unions, the left parties, the workers' parties are actively betraying and undermining the the, the movement and betraying the masses. But really, every major institution in bourgeois society is is stinks. It's horrible. So in general, we sympathize with the sentiment. Uh, and also, uh, what about what they know of Marxism. The so-called Marxists have created a totalitarian state in the Soviet Union. So you can understand why some people would uh, think that the problem was authority or hierarchy uh, in and of themselves. And a lot of youth would maybe consider themselves anarchist uh, without having read Proudhon or Bakunin. Uh, so a lot of the time it comes from a healthy sentiment uh, against the state uh, against the trade union bureaucracy. But as Trotsky said, the truth is always concrete. Uh, it's important, I think, that when you meet a young person who's a bit anarchist or interested in anarchism, that you don't discuss abstractly with them on whether or not authority is good or bad, for example. Um, we should sympathize with the anti-authoritarian state uh, sentiment, actually. But then use concrete examples to show that this idea taken to its logical conclusion is actually damaging to the movement. For example, during a strike. Five minutes. Um, how is it decided that you're going to go on strike? Well, uh, they have a meeting. All viewpoints are put forward and discussed. A vote is held. And if the majority votes to go on strike, everyone goes on strike. Uh, it's not consensus. If the minority wants to go to work, they aren't allowed to go to work and they are stopped using force actually. Now I find when you pose it concretely like that, most anarchist or anarchist youth would totally agree. So what it really is, is it's a, it's a case of rejecting uh, bourgeois authority, which is actually the authority of a minority. And we are completely opposed to this authority. But without the imposition of the authority of the majority on to this minority, uh, no revolution would be possible. Uh, as Engels said uh, in a text he wrote called On Authority, he said, a revolution is certainly the most authoritarian thing there is, and precisely because it is one class imposing itself on the other. It's also, I think it's important or interesting to note that one of the criticisms, the main criticisms that anarchists have against Marxists uh, is this idea of a vanguard, which uh, quite often they'll call it elitist. But then what... Concretely, what does anarchist activity look like in the movement a lot of the time? For example, take the Black Bloc, for example. Well, I don't know an example of a more unaccountable, unrecallable, dem undemocratic, uh, vanguard elitist group. 
me ocurre ningún ejemplo de un grupo eh, más opaco o más eh, antidemocrático. Pero ellos actúan como esto porque saben que no pueden convencer a la mayoría. Dos minutos. Pero actúan de esta manera porque saben que no pueden convencer. So they're really just protesting against being in a minority uh, and lacking patience to uh, patiently try to convince the majority of what needs to happen. Uh, so to finalize, I think it, it's a concrete question. Uh, it's, it's actually easy to so, show using concrete examples that this is a question of victory or defeat. And for this reason, we need to wage war against anarchist ideas in the movement. Um, as we quite often say, uh, ultra-leftism and anarchism is a form of ultra-leftism and opportunism are two sides of the same coin. Uh, so therefore, the best way to fight anarchism, to fight ultra-leftism, uh, is to provide a genuine Marxist expression for the anger of workers and youth today. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Um, so before I let John back in, I uh, just wanted to give two uh, uh, book recommendations. Uh, the first one, which Joel reminded me when he was speaking of, is uh, Victor Serge's Year One of the Russian Revolution, where Victor Serge tries to convince uh, anarchists to join uh, the Bolsheviks or the revolution, to support the revolution. And so it contains a lot of the arguments that he uses to try to win them over. And the second book is uh, our own Marxism and Anarchism, which takes up a lot of different ideas of anarchism and answers them. And you can find these on uh, many of the uh, IMT bookshops, including wellreadbooks.net and uh, the American Marxistbooks.com. Uh, and John is very pleased. I've given a plug for that. So I'm now going to hand the uh, word to uh, John to sum up. Okay, well, thanks, uh, comrades, to everyone who spoke for the excellent contributions and for the book recommendations. And thank you to the birds for bringing their good cheer and song to the discussion. Now, there's a lot of angles that we were only able to touch on briefly. And one thing that comes up often when we're discussing Marxism and anarchism is the question of Nestor Machno and the Kronstadt uprising during the Russian Civil War. And we have some really wonderful articles on these topics at Marxist.com. I suggest everyone check them out. But just briefly, we should, be, we should be crystal clear about something. These people were not repressed by the Bolsheviks for being anarchists, not for, the, not for their ideas, but for playing an objectively counter-revolutionary and reactionary role for putting the interests of the petty bourgeoisie and of the kulaks in particular above the interests of the working class, because by extension, this represented the interests of the capitalists and of imperialism, which was trying to crush the revolution. And after these and other groupings were disarmed and were no longer a potential conduit for capitalist intervention and restoration, the anarchists were allowed to publish and discuss anything they wanted to, at least in the early days of the Soviet Union under Lenin and Trotsky. Now, as has been noted, uh, at root, anarchism lacks a coherent political theory. The idea, their idea seems to be that if people would just 
open their eyes and stop believing this foolish nonsense, then things like the state and religion would just disappear. But we can't impose our reality on the real world. Uh, and the real world just doesn't work that way. Bakunin himself found this out the hard way in, in the farce of the Lyon uprising in 1870. Now, after the fall of Louis Bonaparte and his empire, uh, after the defeat of the French by the Prussians in the Franco-Prussian War, uh, Bakunin rushed to Lyon, France. He installed himself in the town hall and he declared the abolition of the state. And he published a declaration to this effect. And he purposely didn't put any guards around the building because that would be a political act and a form of a state. Uh, but within hours, the National Guard showed up and drove them out in humiliation because apparently these armed bodies of men, the National Guard, hadn't read Bakunin's declaration about the abolition of the state. And so, I mean, it really does get this ridiculous sometimes. And, and so with all due respect, anarchism to me is a bit like immature, rebellious teen angst. It's genuinely and rightfully indignant at the state of the world. And this isn't a surprise given the extreme discrediting of all the institutions, norms, and morality of the capitalist status quo. But instead of having a worked out long-term plan of action, they lash out in the abstract against authority in any form. It's full of passion and energy and has the willingness to smash all obstacles. And to be sure, a lot of great music has come out of the anarchist uh, movement. And this can be very appealing, especially to the youth. And of course, energy and enthusiasm and the willingness to sacrifice are very apt qualities. But some obstacles, like the bourgeois state, can't be smashed by sheer willpower or by individuals. But I think the overwhelming trend among young people today is not towards individualism. Despite the atomization and extreme alienation of this rotten ripe system, with the iPhone, the iPod, the iPad, the so-called me generation... Rather, I think the trend is towards collective, united action, especially among the youth. Not nationalism, but internationalism. Not the separating out of this or that oppressed layer, but unity and struggle. The fact that the demographics of the George Floyd protesters matched the overall population, I think, is a clear indication of this. And the power of mass collective action was on full display. It's not an accident that while the masses were on the streets, the state was paralyzed. It was on the back foot on the defensive. And it's only when the movement began to ebb that the state got the upper hand, that, uh, that uh, anonymous agents of the state can now corral isolated individuals and haul them off in unmarked vehicles. And again, this is just the beginning of a revolutionary process that has begun in this country, a worldwide process that is already raging in, in, in many other countries around the world. Comrades, our international website is called In Defense of Marxism. We must defend Marxism from the influence of alien class ideas, whether this influence is conscious or unconscious. We should be very proud of these ideas and proud of what our tendency has done to preserve their revolutionary essence. 
In a historic period when there has been enormous pressure on the working class, especially since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we should view this school as a springboard to help us go onto the offensive with these ideas. Millions of people worldwide are wide open to revolutionary ideas, and only Marxism can offer that. So we have to get out there and spread them far and wide with boldness, with confidence, with audacity. We have to continue to patiently and painstakingly build our cater organization. If each and every one of us continues to study hard, to work hard or efficiently, if we recognize, analyze and correct any mistakes we make, then with a certain convergence of factors, objective and subjective factors, a relatively small force can become a material force for mass social change. As our ideas connect with the needs and aspirations of the masses in struggle. So for every one of us participating in this university this weekend, we can become 30, 100, 1,000 or more. So let's get out to it. Thank you. Thank you, John. And after the break, there will be three sessions that you can choose between. The Politics of Division, Marxism versus Identity Politics, The History of the IMT, and Is the Class Struggle Eurocentric, Marxism versus Postcolonialism? And those will be starting in uh, just under one hour at 5.30 British time. Thank you to all the comrades who have intervened and spoken in this session. And thank you to all the translators. And uh, thanks for all of you who have been uh, listening in to the session as well. I will see you in one hour.